welcome to the second episode of the Zero Fucks, Zero FX. I think we're still working out what the hell we're called. Um, as usual, you will hear my child in the background on a regular basis, so apologies for that one. Um, with us today, we have the lovely John Jackson, um, aka John J. Hacking. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Would you like to yeah. yourself? tell us a bit about who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So I am a senior penetration tester for TrustWave. Uh, Spider Labs specifically, which is their security consulting uh, pen test kind of department or division, you can say. Um, and I am the founder of Sakura Samurai, a uh, hacking group, uh, and we basically do legal hacking. I hope you said legal hacking there, not illegal. Legal, legal, okay. not illegal. <laughs> yeah, I... I was like, wow, doxed himself already. Um, yeah, so I think really that's kind of how I know you from Twitter and seeing the stuff that you've been doing around Sakura Samurai. Um, so I think that's probably what we're going to focus the conversation on today. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of how you started it? What what was the reason behind you kind of creating the group and kind of who you've asked to be involved in it? Sure. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I created Sakura Samurai. One of the biggest reasons being that most of the hacking groups that are out there and are known uh, with limited limited exceptions are they kind of base themselves around hacktivism and illegal hacking. Um, obviously, we wanted to stay within the confines of the law so we don't end up in jail just trying to hack. Um, but hacktivism is needed in its own sense, but that wasn't us. Um, so I drew a lot of inspiration from Cult of the Dead Cow and anonymous and kind of how they operated uh, and figured that I could probably make my own hacking group. Um, I wanted to be in Cult of the Dead Cow at one point in time, but you know, it's they've got their own vetting process and the way they do things. And jokingly, I went on Twitter and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to start a hacking cult, you know? Um, but actually, even before that, I was like, I want to uh, join a hacking cult, you know? So if you want, me to be part of that, then message me or whatever. And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start one. And I did. Um, and I asked a few people to be involved that I was doing security research with, like uh, Jackson Henry, uh, Aubrey Cottle, aka uh, Kurt Tanner, and uh, Robert Willis, uh, aka Regex. And those were my original kind of members. And this was co-founded between myself and someone named uh, Nick Soller, uh, aka Arctic. And he's retired now, but he was uh, my my co-founder, and we worked on some of the early hacks together, United Nations, and that kind of thing. Excellent. So, like, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I think it's cool. I think I saw your TikTok on Twitter, which is confusing, the other day, where you were saying that loads of people keep kind of asking you whether you can join your group and kind of have, how they can get involved with it. And you you were saying to them, like, guys, just start your own group. It's not like... Yeah. And us versus them kind of thing it's you know you can all do it you know that's that's part of the thing that makes it really difficult is people think that it's like some sort of attainable goal that they can shoot towards and, and maybe it is um but i don't look at it that way i look at it like everything kind of just flows naturally you meet people you research with them you you get to know them and you like them and then you, you kind of vet them, see who they are and bring them into the group if you want them. It's not like something where you sit down and do a, a job application type thing. It's not it's not anonymous where you just start, you know, wearing it, wearing a mask or start hacking under the name and doing it. It's, it's neither of those things. It's it's very cult of the dead cow like in, in how we vet our members. We keep our processes kind of segmented and, and separated from from what the world knows, you know, because if people know how we vet people, then they're going to game it. And we don't want that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in terms of secure Samurai, what are the, I mean, I don't really want to, I don't know if we can ask you like what you're working on or if there's like, I don't know how it works. Like what can, what can we ask you about it? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's very natural. And what I mean by that is, sometimes the, the hacks come to us and, and it's weird to say that but it's like you'll stumble across something especially when you've been hacking for a while and you're like oh this something seems wrong about this right and then you drop it into the group chat like hey take a look at what this 
applications doing or take a look at what I found on this server while I was like logging into my bank or what, you know, whatever the case may be. And then we look at it and we make a deter determination based on like the impact and if it's exploitable and that kind of thing. And if it is, then, then we kind of make the next move. So imagine like, I'll give you an example, uh, Ford, for instance, Ford was kind of dropped into our lap, you know, um, Robert Willis, Regex, and uh, one of his friends, Breaker, who he's not in the group, but he, he's a friend. Um, they started playing around with um, a chat application through Pegasus. And that's how they were able to exploit that, which after we did a little bit of research, we found that it was also on Ford. And then we found that Ford had a vulnerability disclosure program. So we were like, okay, well, what if we play around with this vulnerability on Ford? I wonder if we could do anything. And then we ended up getting admin access to uh, their internal application and being able to pull tokens and being able to pull user PII and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, sometimes we sit down and we go, hey, here's a list of VDPs, like vulnerability disclosure programs that we can legally hack on, like just have at it. And sometimes, you know, we end up doing like bug bounty research and finding a CVE that affects everything. Or sometimes it's private research where we just get paid and we just go go on our way. You know, we don't necessarily make news for it or something like that. So it's like all sorts of different types of hacking. Do you ever find like vulnerabilities in an organization and then you tell them about it and they don't want to disclose it? Like, do that, is that a common issue? Yeah. Or? Is it a common issue? Yes, absolutely. I've found about nine out of 10 times that I'm trying to do a disclosure, they don't want to disclose it to the public. Um, I would say more often than not, we convince them that it's going to happen anyway. And they just kind of go with it, you know, because based on like, it, it all depends on if it's like a bug bounty program or a vulnerability disclosure program, or if it's open source software. So like, for instance, take something like Signal, Signal is an open source product. So, you know, to be fair, quote unquote fair, right? You wanna give them 90 days to resolve an issue before you disclose it. You wanna try to give them that period of time. However, there's really no law against if you were to just drop on open source software unpatched, you can kind of do it because it's open source. Um, however, you know, we try to work with people in the right sense then you have vulnerability disclosure programs. They're a little more stringent. You kind of want to make sure they fix the issue before you drop it because, you know, some of them are big name companies or government entities and stuff like that. And you don't want them to get exploited because you just couldn't be patient. Uh, so we try to be fair about that, but it, it doesn't always end up fair. Like Ford, Ford, for instance, they were like just straight up ignoring us. And we were like, okay, they're running a vulnerability disclosure program, but they're running it through HackerOne. HackerOne states that their policy is you got to wait 180 days to disclose if they're not working with you. And I'm like, oh God. So we had to wait that full length of time to disclose something that was already fixed just because they were like, no, we don't care. And you know, that ended up burning them in, in the news a little bit. And that's not really our fault. That's the nature of the game. You, you say that's the nature of the game. I'm I'm curious because I've I've never well I'm I'm fairly new into the industry, so my knowledge and understanding of hacking is is completely skewed by media reports, uh, rather than actual any real knowledge. So sure. when you say it's a game, do you do you consider it a game or do you consider it more of a service? So I look at it kind of in the sense of it starts as a service, but sometimes ends up a game and if that makes sense it's like okay here's something that i did for you for free and you don't really care that i'm i'm trying to help you or maybe you're coming after me or, or maybe you're being passive aggressive about it okay well it just turned into a game now now it just went from a simple media disclosure or something as simple as wow you know these security researchers helped us out and it was really great. And then shake of the hand, as sick codes would call it, um, one of our previous members, um, into a just full out, oh, look at this company that doesn't care about security research and, and free, basically free vulnerability reporting to help them fix serious issues, right? So that's when it kind of turns into a game. And it's not really us turning it into a game so much so as 
it just looks bad because you you pass on the disclosure to the media and they go, okay, well, why weren't they responding to you? Well, they didn't feel like it. They didn't want to, you know, maybe they have, they have stocks and they don't want their stock price to, to be affected, but it's kind of that Streisand effect a little bit where, well, if you avoid it long enough, it's going to hit 10 times harder. And that's yeah, what happened with Ford. I was going to say, like, surely if they're not doing anything about it when they know about it and it's not kind of like public knowledge, when someone actually exploits it from a malicious perspective, it's clearly going to be so much worse than them just having to fix it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when people work with you, it has less media impact and, and less negative impact for the organization. A perfect example is Keybase. I found a vulnerability where they were storing photos in clear text and they're supposed to be encrypting them um, or not storing them at all, one of the two. And they weren't doing that. And basically what happened uh, with that is I reported it through their bug bounty program on HackerOne. They were great about it. They paid me for it. We got it resolved. We got the CVE issued. Um, and it did make the news, but it only it only hit maybe a couple uh, news outlets. And if you actually look at the media, it was it, it paints Keybase in a very good light. Like, oh, they you know took care of the issue very quickly, and they got it resolved and got the vulnerability patch. And that's that's ideal. That's what you want. That's good media. It makes you look better as a company. Hey, these guys found this, but the uh, but the company responded and fixed it very quickly, and and we're very helpful that's that's what you want ideally the, the reality is that it's unlikely that almost every system is 100 percent secure there, there's going to be ways into the majority of of uh, systems available so if people can find them and help you take advantage of it there's no point being a dick about it and just say no no you're wrong i'm not listening to you la 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 we're fine because yeah it's, obviously it's, it's gonna bite you it's basically like free pen testing so kind um, of but like yeah i know it's not like you're not sitting there going here's like where we could use like you're not looking like at the whole environment but you found a way into that system that you should hopefully would get picked up by a pen test but if it's an uncommon vulnerability then i guess that's kind of where you guys step in and you're you're finding the things that are kind of new or whatever right sometimes i mean if you look at the indian government for instance they i think they hit the top 10 for cybersecurity in the world right now but uh when we were working with them they were very low ranking for their cybersecurity, and that's because they were not taking their vulnerability management and reporting seriously at all um, and we kind of forced their hand a little bit, and I hate to put it that way, but we had, I don't know, I think 34 odd pages, 32 odd pages of vulnerabilities to report to them that we found within, I don't know, 48 hours. And it was absurd, the amount of things we can do, the amount of servers we can take over. I got remote code execution on their financial server. Uh, Aubrey Cottle, aka Kurt Tanner, he he chained that together with a session takeover and was actually able to access their financial application. So we had access on both the client side, the user side and the server side. So like we controlled that financial application hundred percent. And that was just one of many, many things that we had found like credentials to, you know, power grid type things. And like, it was bad. Um, so yeah, it was a service. Like we went through the Pentagon to, to get help disclosing to them because we were like, shit, they're going to, they're going to haul us off in a fucking like they're, they're going to, I don't know, just bust our door down and just black bag us and just put us on a plane to India, like straight up. It was that bad, like the amount of stuff that we found. Um, I mean, and then you have Jackson Henry. He's one of our youngest members, Conchi, 15 years old, and he's tearing India apart. He's he's tearing them apart. He's finding uh, PII for students and shit like leaked on database, database backups and like, and he's just dumping it. And you're just like, holy shit, this is like, wow, this is, this is bad. So you would think that they're doing pen tests, right? But you'll find that like government is super bad with that. And some of the enterprises are bad too, because pen testing to them as is doing a vulnerability scan or uh, hiring pen testers, but not fixing any of the issues. Yeah, just, I think you know, check the box. 
So that's the thing I think a lot of companies do with pen testing as kind of a tick box exercise. Like we've had a few people come to us, not necessarily customers of ours, but people who've, even just people who've inquired with our organization saying like, oh, our insurance company have said that we've got to get a pen test. So can we just do like whatever the, yep. minimum, the minimum amount of pen testing is that gets me insured by this company? And you're like, why? Like, surely you want to do like the adequate amount of pen testing that makes you secure because then you'll know where all the holes are. There's no point in me just scanning your external IPs. Like that's because that's basically all the insurance companies are asking for. Mm -hmm. Literally like a vulnerability scan on your external infrastructure. Like and that's the other thing too, right? Like you bring up a really good point. Looking for holes though and, and patching it are two separate things. You know, you'll have companies that buy the most advanced uh, red team and pen test exercises identify all the vulnerabilities and weaknesses and do nothing to fix them come come next quarter or semi-annually whatever uh, their specific requirement is for their industry they'll go in and pen testers will run the same exact playbook and find the same vulnerabilities because they haven't fixed it from six months prior and that's that's one of the issues it's what's the point in paying paying for that for the checkbox exercise if you're not going to fix it because you're you're wasting your money essentially and then you know you get hit someone drops ransomware you know gdpr violations and yada yada it goes on and on until you rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines um and you're like you could have just assigned a few employees to to patch these vulnerabilities whether it be network side or on web application mobile whatever the case may be yeah, I think that's um yeah, that's true. Um you mentioned about like companies having internal pen testers as well. Do you think do you think it's important that companies go to like a third party to get pen tested? Because I mean I I do, but then I sell pen testing, so I'm probably biased on that one. I'm like, yes, please come to us and we'll check it. Yeah, so what was I saying? Excellent. yeah, so a lot of enterprise companies have internal pen test teams who are like looking at their their own environment but for me i think it's kind of like marking your own homework because surely you know where all the holes are and you probably get like a little bit not complacent i guess but i think maybe you just get used to looking at that environment it's like when you read when you write in a document and you read the document over and over again you miss where the spelling mistakes are until you give it to someone else to look at right so is it the same thing with pen testing i think there's a few aspects to it that's one of them um complacency is definitely a thing where you might see something from a different light um i also think there's a physical requirement too so what i mean by that is depending on the organization especially like financial organizations they can't always use internal uh pen testers to assess their environment they have to actually like um outsource and hire third-party companies and they do that from PCI DSS kind of compliance standpoint because they want to ensure that there isn't collusion, right? That they're not just checking the box. And that happens too. And that's kind of part of what sucks with that is I might see a vulnerability in the environment that I look at and go, oh, that's not that big of a deal. You know, I've been looking at this and it hasn't been fixed, but uh, it hasn't been exploited. And then you might come in from an external perspective and start hitting it and being like, whoa, I just found this vulnerability. And here's what I can do with that vulnerability. And it might be completely different. Um, you know, to me, it might be something as simple as like, I don't know, let's say, uh, reflected cross site scripting vulnerability, and I might just be like, Oh, wow, that's no big deal. And they're not really fixing it, whatever. But a third party company, or even a threat actor might take that reflected cross site scripting and use a beef webhook with it or something and are able to take over uh, other parts of the op, uh, application because they're stealing cookies. And then you have a big problem on your hands because you just weren't ready for it. Um, and I think a lot of pen testers know that that risk lies there, but the business doesn't necessarily care. And that's that's where it gets complicated. I think that's an issue a lot of the times, like the the CISO probably cares about all these issues and wants to make it more secure, but trying to convey that message to like the rest of the board when they're thinking like, how do we improve our profits or how do we get more customers mm -hmm. on board or whatever? They're not really looking at like whether, yeah, whether there's a vulnerability in some web application that people log into, right? 
Yeah, I kind of have the unique perspective of understanding that well because I wasn't always a pen tester. I was a senior application security engineer before this, and I did pen testing and um, would also do intake for vulnerabilities through our HackerOne program. And when I would pass this over to teams to fix, it was there was a few different scenarios. One of them was they would try to just ignore it, be like, oh, this isn't that big of an issue, and then I'd have to escalate. Or two, they knew it was an issue, but resources to get it fixed in a timely manner um, was difficult. Or three, they they realized the value of security and they and they fixed it straight away. So it could be one of the three, but the I, I'd say primarily more often than not, it's they realize that it's an issue, but resources aren't there to get it done in the time frame that we want. And that and that is the reality of it. And that's because of the enterprise not putting money into secure coding. Um, like you said, the CISO knows that it's an issue, but it, it just doesn't get taken care of in, in that sense because it's like, okay, what value or what monetary value are we receiving from security? Eh, well, you're not losing a shit ton of money. That's that's the biggest key that you're overlooking. You're not just getting ran for millions of dollars. Yeah, I always try and at my at my last job we used to have to go and kind of explain to customers what the ROI would be of like implementing some mm -hmm. of the Microsoft security stuff. And a lot of the time I was like, but it's kind of an intangible benefit. Like you're technically saving millions because you're not gonna have like all of these issues going on because you've actually got something in place that like say like something like um Azure information, uh, not Azure information protection, um, defender for identities, but kind of looking at looking at your on-premise environment and it's looking at whether if you basically, if you're getting pen tested, it should light up like a Christmas tree. So if someone was hacking your environment, you'd be able to see that they were kind of like escalating their own privileges and that kind of thing. Um, so un like knowing that there's not like a financial benefit you can really attach to it, but it's kind of invaluable because if there's someone in your environment doing that kind of thing, then they're not there for a great reason either. They're probably there because they're trying to do something malicious. Right. Yeah. So, so the enterprise space for for pen testing is kind of cancer in in its own sense. I hate to put it that way, but the, that's the truth there. And and then when you want to move away from that and start talking about bug bounties and, and VDPs a little more, um, it has its own set of issues. I, I wrote a book called Corporate Cybersecurity: Identifying Risks in the Bug Bounty Program. It's being published through Wiley, I think in the December-ish timeframe. And I can tell you that one of the biggest problems with bug bounty programs, well, there's a lot of problems, but uh, as a researcher or as a hacker, uh, scope is always a problem and understanding of impact, right? You're communicating with these programs and you're trying to say, hey, look, look what I can do with this vulnerability. And they're going, okay, well, I know that we have this rated as this, but this is a dev environment or this is a that environment, right? Like this is a, you know, uh, sandboxed environment or whatever. Like it doesn't really matter if you can take over the server and you'll see that. And it's like, well, remote code executions are critical. That's what you should pay me for because that's the nature of the vulnerability and the impact is not it's not minimal because just having a server that or being able to take over a server that the company owns can you could do a lot with that you can start launching speeder phishing campaigns setting up web apps under their name doing all sorts of sorts of stuff beyond what what they're seeing right um so it doesn't matter if it's just one server and not connected to the entire environment there's a lot of impact and i think that bug bounty program managers they don't understand that well at all and vdp managers and, and uh, don't understand like security researchers in, in general, especially like when you're talking about CVEs or the CVE space. Do you ever get to do like red teaming as well as kind of general pen testing as well? So um, I'm kind of new to that. I just started a job as as a senior pen tester for um, Trustwave. But you know, red teaming is definitely going to be part of the job because we have to do engagements where we have to fish and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, phishing, as everyone knows, is a very good method to attack because people are the weakest link, and that's just the reality of it. Not everyone is technically educated, nor nor cares to be.
That is controversial. People are the weakest link. Is it? I don't think that's controversial. Well, I think I think it kind of we always say that like you defense it like you have the human firewall, right? So people are either going to be the strongest link or the weakest link. So if you've gone on the you've aired on the side of like weakest link, but maybe if we all I don't know, I think like the security team needs to take some responsibility for like explaining security to people not necessarily the security team but like the organization needs to have an emphasis on security so they're explaining to their employees like why they should be taking security seriously Here's the news. <laughs> Our first story this evening is the saga of the fake Banksy NFT sold to a British collector via the artist's official website. The victim, a prominent collector known to us only as Pranksy, you literally couldn't write this shit, paid over $300,000 for the digital token, which has now been repaid back to him. Pranksy, if you're watching, our ZeroFX NFT is available next week at the bargain price of $50,000. We'll await your call. Next up is the story about Twitter introducing a new safety mode to stop so-called pylons, where an account is thought to be repeatedly sending, harassing, or insulting tweets to an individual, or repeated uninvited mentions. The account will be temporarily blocked and unable to send their target any DMs, tweets, or even review their profile. Looks like Piers Morgan is in for a quiet few weeks when this launches. And finally, the news that China is attacking the BBC in an attempt to undermine its credibility as a news outlet. Recorded future researchers have identified hundreds of websites and social media accounts which have been attacking the Beebs reporting, particularly with reference to a supposed gloom filter which makes the country look dull and lifeless. Critics have been left questioning whether the BBC has been applying the same filter to pictures of Tory ministers. But it turns out, no, they actually do have the personality of a potato. Over to the weather. You stay classy and for that community. Starting in the southwest, the run of unusually warm weather we've had is resulting in a growing area of high pressure around Exeter. Nothing to do with the weather, that's just on the roads. Historically, of course, this is mining country, so keep an eye out for adventurous types wearing head torches. Moving on up into the Midlands, we see thick cloud cover. No precipitation to speak of, just badly named products and poorly designed user interfaces. The picture changes as we move further east. Keep an eye out for sin flooding, especially in low-lying areas. More or less the same picture moving north, though obviously wetter, colder and different accents. Don't expect too much change as we move into the weekend. Expect patches of sunshine and broken cloud with the occasional shower. Misty in the mornings and, of course, a high chance of ransomware. Thank you. Yeah, so I know a company... Um where they actively encourage people to report if their personal accounts have been like hacked or if they've had breaches there because it makes them think continuously about security like it's not just like a work thing they need to think about it's like they should be thinking about it when they're not at work as well and they've like gamified it all so if they i don't think they get points for like their accounts being hacked or whatever but <laughs> they've somehow gamified it so it's like so people are encouraged to kind of talk about it and then because if you're talking about it you're thinking about it a lot more um, sure. so i think there's ways that organizations can kind of develop their culture to make people a stronger link they're not necessarily i mean yeah i guess they are the weakest link but they're also we should they shouldn't be I Something you said, though, Amy, sort of raised by hackles a little bit, because you said you think security should be doing more to inform people. And I think that's unfair because I think security um, has a specific task. And I don't necessarily feel that that task is informing and educating people. I think the, the job 
of informing and educating should be assigned to somebody who is good at that, who's trained in that. I don't think it's fair to necessarily assume that somebody who can create secure systems can also explain and describe secure no, systems. But, but so that's why I, th I think I qualified it actually by saying the CISO is responsible for that function um, because there should be someone within the security team who has that role. Like you're saying, I'm not saying like, yeah. the, I'm not saying that like the SOC analyst should be responsible for walking around going, guys, this is what a phishing email looks like. Well, in the team who is responsible for education, especially in large organisations. Yeah, but having having just gone through a job hunting period myself, a lot of the work, uh, a lot of people are asking for that. Exactly that. We're looking for SOC analysts uh, and for people who will, will share the message around the workplace. Well, you know, I've been a teacher and I can teach and I can gladly put together a really solid educational programme around security. But I wouldn't expect somebody who can do SOC analysis to be able to do that because that's not the training they've had. And I think people need to be a bit more realistic in, in the way they introduce this. I know some companies, as you said, Amy, introducing gamification. Um, I know that, that our own Emily Badley has got a, a brilliant job trying to involve um, augmented reality and virtual reality into security training. Um, so, so there are companies who are heading in, in what I feel is the right direction. But uh, I think too often you see technical people being called on to explain things to non-technical people and surprise surprise it doesn't always go as smoothly as people might like uh yes but surely part of the role of like so john you must find this part of the role as pen tester there's no point you finding a load of vulnerabilities and then not being able to explain it to a customer who's got no fucking clue Indeed. from a technical perspective so you do have to have some level of being able to communicate with non-technical users right yeah, that's actually, I, I would argue, and this is my personal stance, every technical individual that, that works in this field and, and that wants to really get to a, a point of being like senior level uh, in terms of just their technical role, uh, be it blue team, red team, whatever, they have to learn how to translate their technical findings to non-technical people. And that includes training and awareness too, because for instance, if a red team does a red team engagement on a company or a client that hires them and uh, they find that they're able to get access to the environment because they crafted a phishing email and someone clicked the link, downloaded the PDF, executed the PDF or something like that, you have to, you're going to have to explain to that client why that worked. You, ha you have to, because you can't just say, oh, well, Train your people better to not click links because like you have to explain the kind of psychology to it in, in a sense because they're, they're paying you to, to do that. Now, when, when you talk internally, that is a little different. Yeah. Um, when you're requiring security analysts to, to do uh, security awareness training for the organization, it does detract from their technical mission, which is stopping attacks, right? you know, triaging malware, like all of that kind of stuff that is very important for a security analyst. And maybe maybe there's a comfortable middle ground somewhere where it's not necessarily the entire uh, job responsibility of a security analyst. Maybe it's a, you know, security and, and training analyst, right? Or something like that, where the, the job that they're signing up for is not just being a security analyst, but also doing uh, training or, or focusing maybe, you know, 75% training, 25% analyst work or, you know, or 50-50 or also focusing on security documentation and gamifying that security awareness uh, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I do see that very often where it's uh, the expectation of the job role, especially engineer roles is, hey, teach everyone how to be safe and secure. And it's like, yeah, but people are dumb. People are really stupid and, and you want me to teach people how to how to be smart. But the truth is, even security individuals will click uh, on on phishing links and, and payloads because crafting them is amazingly easy in this day and age. And it's easy to fish. And if you can make a realistic template, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Someone's tired. They haven't even had their coffee. They're going through all their emails. They see this. Oh, shit. I got to read re-log back in, I got logged out, whatever. Uh-oh, you know, I'm, I'm screwed now, right? Like, 
that happens. And that's what I, that's what I mean by humans will always be the weakest link is it doesn't matter if they're trained on how to identify like a sort a, a certain like campaign or something like that, because uh, threat actors will adapt because that's what they do best is adapt. And that's that cat and mouse game. I think the, the importance is with the back end of that, right? What happens when that PDF document is executed? You know, do they have the endpoint detection response capabilities to be able to prevent this attack? Because you you know the phishing is is a great entryway to start uh, just wrecking havoc on the environment. But it's like, okay, the important part of it is sometimes you maybe you don't have enough vulnerable infrastructure because you're really actually doing a good job. You might need that kind of phishing campaign to un initiate um, a breach kind of scenario where you have a threat actor in the environment and and the important part is what they do in the response, not so much who's going to click on it. Because I don't, I think if it's just a phishing campaign to see who's going to pass fail, those are so fucking stupid. Like they are stupid. It doesn't make any sense because you're going to have employees fail. And if you're going to like try to come down on them, then you're failing your, you're, you're failing your employees because the reality is yes, you can train them, but it doesn't matter if you train all 800 or all 10,000 of your employees, one person is going to click on that. And that's all it takes. And it depends on who that one person is. Usually someone in the C level, I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. Usually, usually someone at C level who has managed to get themselves to be an exception to every bit of security tooling that's been put in place because it, it renders them like less productive or it's too much of like a pain in the ass for them to have to use MFA. So they've just excluded themselves from all these policies they can do because they're at sea level and then it's usually them that clicks on the fucking phishing email and then ends up being like the one person that's failed but it's not necessarily the clicking on the phishing email that mm -hmm. yeah is the issue because actually as you say somebody will you know when you've yeah. got a workforce of a decent size statistically it's going to happen the point is once it's happened what does that then kick into action does that right. person then get in touch with security because that's the process and is the company because you're right setting up your employees to fail is a great way to lose employees because they aren't going to sit around for long to, to be oh great it's monday morning what am i going to get wrong today that's obviously not a way to, to build a, a workforce but actually if you are giving people real life examples that they can then work through to get their head around that actually strengthens their knowledge and strengthens their working capability, then that does make sense. So, you know, uh, I was talking to uh, CISO Anglia Water, who who sent out phishing email to his entire staff, however many thousands, and he knew that people were going to click. It was obvious it was going to happen because that's what they wanted to, to test. And the test they were actually doing was how many of those people then reported it to security. How many of those people, once they realised something had gone wrong, just shut the browser and went back to what they were doing and pretended nothing happened and it was all okay because that's no, where that the, happens, the trouble yeah. lies yeah so so it's it's not just about trying to catch people out it's actually trying to demonstrate what you do next and how the process needs to work and then as a, as a company you can build your security defenses around that knowledge think, well that's the other thing people for that's being the human. other thing too like that i think is really important and i and i have to hit it uh before i forget it here when it comes to like fishing, yeah, I know, right? Nice rhyme. <laughs> didn't even didn't even catch that. But when it comes to fishing, like they don't empower bug bounty hunters to to do fishing campaigns at all. Like social engineering is out of scope, damn near ninety to nine to a hundred percent of the time. And you have to ask yourself why. Why is that out of scope, right? I mean, it's a realistic uh, it threat vector, right? It's a realistic it attack vector. They would bankrupt themselves from paying all the bug bounties, maybe through that. <laughs> I think there's there's a few few reasons. One is probably uh, being disruptive, right? You got a bunch of security researchers consistently sending phishing emails to to an organization's employees, and then you have the second aspect, which is well, payouts for something like uh, remote code execution or access to the environment are very very high. They're they're the most critical, so they don't want to go broke either. Um, you know, they could tailor it. They could do specific uh, social engineering type research uh, 
invite only to security researchers. They could do that, but they choose they choose not to for the most part, uh, from what I've seen, which is very interesting to me, very peculiar. There's also, I think, a, a certain underlying fear of uh, being accused of, of being unethical. That there's a, a feeling that if you if you pick on employees through social engineering, that's unethical because you're trying you're, you're catching people out. And you know, we why should people who are working so hard for you be attacked mm. in this way? I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not preaching on that side, but I'm just saying, you know, it is something. And companies are very fearful of it. They're very afraid of being being attacked for being protective of their rights through what we've already said is the, the weakest link we um at my last place we used to talk to companies about doing like fishing um what they call fishing tests and um we had loads of people come back to us and be like oh well we couldn't do that because you know like, the staff would be really unhappy about it and i'm kind of like well i'm sure they're really unhappy when like they get <laughs> fished in real life <laughs> I'm sure they'll be really unhappy when when all of their PII gets dumped from the from the DB, right? Like, yeah. What, what type of unhappy do you want? You want an hour later? Yeah, it's like, but it was like, yeah, the, like law firms and stuff. So like the lawyers will like litigate against us if we start. That's who it is. We're trying to check. the lawyers? We're trying to catch them out, and it's like, well, no. But then again, it, like, this is what we're talking about the phishing campaigns. If you're doing a phishing campaign to catch people out then yeah, people are going to be pissed about it. But if you're doing a phishing campaign to educate people, then yeah, it's a different, it's a different story. Maybe I've actually changed my view on phishing, like in general. Well, it's, it's always the lawyers and that's the problem. Oh yeah. Lawyers and accountants between them make an awful lot of decisions that go against everything else in a business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other aspect too is, you know, we talked a lot about phishing too, but what we didn't talk about is escalation. So for instance, if I get remote code execution on a server and I start using commands on the server to see what it's connected to, like if it's a Windows server, is it domain joint? And if it is, how many hosts can I see? And the same thing with Linux, right? Like are there uh, IP address uh, routes that are mapped on this uh, Linux server and what is it connected to? And let's say one of these servers, which whichever environment it is, is connected to a lot within the environment. Why, as a security researcher or a hacker, right? Let's just call it what it is. As a hacker, can I not drop a C2 agent or a C2 beacon from an external tool that has a lot of uh, capacity or even manually pivot to other hosts to show how insecure the environment is? And that's one of the things that falls very short in bug bounty programs. They will tell you no pivoting. Same thing with vulnerability disclosure programs. Do not, they'll tell you don't establish uh, command line access, meaning if you get remote code execution and you can prove it, do not have a persistent reverse shell or a session with that server. Why not, right? I mean, like a lot of these companies want to mitigate risk, but they, they, they're they not willing to go the, the full mile, right? Because they know that if you get access to the server, you start poking around, you start escalating and pivoting the different environments. Now they actually have to do their job. They have to start looking in logs to see if it's uh, what's logged. If you end up touching customer PII or data or something like that, they might have to disclose a, uh, a data breach, especially if they don't have logging and, and they're not sure who's impacted. And that's the sad part about this is it's security. It's vanilla security. It's security on, on easy mode. Yeah, I think, do you think companies are quite brave when they have, or when they advertise that they've got like a bug bounty program though? Because surely, like if you've got one, then you've got to be fairly confident in, in your security. It's like when Tesla, it was a couple of years ago when Tesla brought out a new car and they were like, we'll give you a million dollars if you can break into this car. And I was like, mate, even I'm going to go back. I'm like, how do I, how do I learn how to pack? Are they are they brave? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that I talked about when I wrote my book was you should always start with a private program. A hundred percent of the time you should start with a private program and start to expand your scope after you start to harden parts of the environment. Otherwise, you end up like John Deere. So if you look at sick codes research, you know, where it was like sick codes and Wabafet and Dorker, myself, um, Rob and everyone else that was involved in the John Deere research, we hacked the shit out of them. 
literally like we were it was just it was a straight massacre on on their systems like the amount of vulnerabilities that we found in such a quick uh turnaround uh, especially with exposed data and stuff like that and then what they did is they turned the you know to kind of please sick codes and to kind of say hey all right you know what i'll get more involved in this space they made a hacker one bug bounty program the problem with that it was public straight up they just made it uh public and then they quickly flipped it to private now here's the thing um they were already getting publicly hacked so everyone knew they were just pretty much uh you know open oh it was like open season at this point um and then when you do that it's kind of like all right well you have like a public kind of disclosure page now but you have a private bug bounty program like what's going on here no one really knew what was going on and then within the private program they're not even paying researchers so they tried to get sick codes to just go to join the program they tried to trick him into joining the program because once you join you fall under that uh non-disclosure agreement for the private program because that's how most private programs actually work but the thing with that is most private programs pay money and there was no money involved um so it was like are you serious you're gonna trick me into joining a private program that doesn't pay at all and they just didn't know what was going because they going on or whatever they have like a public and a private and all this stuff they're not paying it was just it was a mess and this is exactly what's wrong with with just hacking in, in general, especially with like hacking groups, right? Because, you know, we're not malicious, but what if we were, right? We're talking about manipulating crop data, manipulating equipment. Uh, so farmers think one zone is, is off limits or um, is in limits and it's not, and they start destroying their own crops or something like that. I mean, there is a lot of damage that could be done from a, from a national security type perspective. And, so people need to give a shit about it, basically. Yeah, that's quite um, that's quite scary, really. I think one of the things you talked about earlier was um, your friend Jackson, who is fifteen years old. And I just wanted, yeah, I wanted to go back to uh, having a quick chat about him. Um, so obviously, well, I'm guessing you've got very limited qualifications in cyber. I don't know if you've got any qualifications in cyber. Being fifteen, has he even got like actual qualifications yet if he's 15 i'm not i'm not sure if he has any certs i don't remember i know he was working on the oscp which is pretty hard to uh, obtain at the age of that's mental that's yeah like, well he's really good he does part-time work as a pen tester so um, he's like really good yeah so i just wanted to have a chat about like i guess like experience or knowledge versus kind of like certifications and stuff because he's being talked about a lot right now in the industry and the fact that sure. loads of jobs are asking for like 10 years experience and five MSCs and you need to have a bachelor's degree and this and this, and you need to have an OSCP and a CRT and you need to have, sure. and it's like, a, you need to have a big list of fucking alphabet letters after your name basically. Um, but this guy's 15 and already went yeah. pen tester. So like, yeah, what can you tell us about him? Sure. So traditionally speaking, um, they usually require, at least for a pen test role, they want you to have an OSCP. I think we're kind of getting to a point where they're starting to realize that there's value in people that might want to get certifications but don't have them, maybe money or that kind of thing. Like maybe they've done bug bounty a lot and disclose bugs and they have write-ups and all this kind of cool stuff, but they have no certs. And, and I think Jackson is a really good example of what it's like to have to, to just get owned by someone that has no, you know, major like certifications. He's not a CISSP holder over here just trying to, you know, be a red teamer. You know, he doesn't have a CP. He doesn't have a certified red teaming uh, operator cert or anything like that. But he could hack organizations. And I think there's a few degrees of separation. So the top tier degree of separation is an actual college degree requiring that from anyone that wants to be a professional hacker is idiotic like i'm just going to be real with you it makes no sense um you know most of the skills are, are not applicable. sure okay cool you might take some computing classes and a basic ethical hacking class whatever the case may be for that degree maybe it's a cybersecurity degree but that's not going to help you be a, a raw and dirty hacker and that's yeah. just the truth 
Like, surely the industry's moving quickly enough now anyway that curriculums in universities can't keep up with kind of how fast vulnerabilities are moving, how fast technology is moving. Like, we've yeah. got AI is coming out now, and there's, like, people are hacking into AI systems. They're not teaching that at university because no one, like, it, they have to formulate a whole curriculum around it, and then the tutor has to understand it. And it's, like, people who are, like, are like people hacking 5G. I know a guy that can hack 5G, but he's, like, the only guy I know that can do it. And then they have, yeah, exactly. So then they have the second degree of separation, which is the certifications. Now certifications are a lot better because they're a lot more malleable and, and adaptable. Like the course material will change over time and start to adapt to new tooling and that kind of stuff, depending on who the organization is. So like if it's a written exam versus if it's a hands-on exam, I, I think we're starting to move away from the, the written exams finally, which, which makes way more sense because written exams do nothing like certified ethical hacking exam i think you answer a bunch of multiple choice questions that's what what kind of joke is that what kind of hack do you think you're going to pull off by answering multiple choice questions zero now then you have the opposite side of the house offensive security certified professional where it's like you got 24 hours to hack in the five uh five systems five boxes and one of them is a buffer overflow you have to do a poc for a stack based buffer overflow and the other four uh, uh, vary in, in difficulty or whatever the case may be. And that's hard. It's a hard exam, you know, and, and even that is we're, we're getting to the point where just having an OSCP pen testing firms are like, oh, cool. OK, but what have you done? Have you done any bug bounty? Do you have any CVEs? Do, have you made any tools? So it's like they're looking for more and more hands on uh, work, but they also want a slew of certification. So it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty hard uh, i struggled to get into offensive security yeah i think one of the things that i always tell like so i i head up a mentoring group no i had a mentoring program um of like like 80 students i think um but the thing that i kind of tell every single person is you have to make yourself stand out because at the end of you doing the course that you're on you'll have these qualifications but guess who else will have the qualifications the other fucking 80 people that you're all sat there mm -hmm. with right now. Like, oh, yeah. like, it's like when people, I, mean, I get a lot of CVs come through to me and they're all like, I've just passed my MSc in cyber. And I'm like, great. So the other 120 people on your course, like what, what else have you done that's different? Like, and it sounds That's like, why Jackson rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's doing loads of cool stuff. Like even yeah. now, before he's even started He's not just, well, I guess he has started his career, but he, like he shouldn't have done at 15. <laughs> at, at, 18, at 18 years old, he could do whatever he wants. And that's because just forget about certifications for, for a second and just think about his workflow and his process. Like this state department, when we did the uh, Department of State hack, he basically escalated those vulnerabilities and led that hack from start to finish. He disclosed to, uh, to the media, he disclosed to... Uh, Department of State. He got them to fix it. He got them to review the write-ups. He coordinated with the Department of Homeland Security. He did all that shit himself because he was like, hey, do you want to? And I was like, no, you got it, man. Run with it. Like you, we work together enough at this point that I trust you enough to go do it. And he did. And he killed it. He did such an amazing job on that. And it's like, this kid is 15, right? So, you know, by the time he's 18, he's got a slew of CVs, slew of breaches, media, all this stuff. What you're gonna ask him for an LSCP certifications? Are you, are well, you daft? Someone will. I know, and that's someone and that's will. the funny part is like, that is it's it's hilarious to me because it's still very straw in the hat. You know, 24 hours. Realistically, pen testers have much longer than 24 hours to hack into systems. They do, and threat actors have unlimited time. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, so what do you want to weigh it against? It, it makes me laugh that they ask for all these qualifications because I do always think like like malicious people, they can just go and be in a malicious hacking group and they don't have to have, like, like no one who ever owns a hacking group. It's not like, sorry, can I see your CP certification before you come join us? And can I also see that you've got a cyber, cyber security degree? Like, they're not asking you to do that. They're like, show us the skills that you've got. We should probably take like hiring practices from the malicious like side of side of things and like bring those practices into how we actually hire security professionals like based there's on there's a way to do that there is a way to do that and i think they can just do hands-on tests spin up a lab environment i've done 
I've uh, applied for a company once where it was like, they did a very brief kind of, you know, uh, one-on-one and, and team interview where they just asked me some questions and then they gave me a lab and a VPN connection and they said, hack it and write up a report. And that's what I did. And I think that is an excellent way to conduct interviews because that's the reality, right? Like, yeah, I could sound good on paper. Sure. But can I hack an environment where they know there's a lot of different vulnerabilities that they'll see day to day? Yeah. One of, my, one of my friends to kind of stand out in an interview, he'd gone for an interview, as a, I think it was a pen tester, um, but he wanted to kind of stand out. So he did everything that he could do kind of legally to pen test the company. So I don't know, he was looking on like Shodan and all that kind of stuff. And he ended up writing and he like, and then he Googled like what a report should look like. Um, and then he wrote a report and took it to the company and was like, look, this is, I'm not actually like hacked you because I'm not allowed to do that, right? Because uh, of the Computer Misuse Act, 1983. Um, so, <laughs> but, I think it's um, yeah, yep. so, but he like took a report to them and said, look, even just using like OSINT, here's what I found online, like yeah. around about your organization. He ended up getting the job because they were like, shit, this guy, like, He's not hacked us, but he's told us shitloads of stuff that we didn't actually know about in terms of what oh, yeah. we've got. I mean, that, even just from like, yeah, just from like a, not, not, he couldn't go that intrusive with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, just in, in general, there's, there's a lot of issues. Everyone kind of knows the issues. Everyone complains about the same issues and. It's hard because from a legal and HR perspective and enterprise perspective, they're always going to have those kind of issues. And then you have your self-starters, people that can make a full-time living off bug bounties um, because they've they've gamified it enough to a point where they're automating pretty much everything um, and just going and taking a manual look. Um, and, then, and then there's your threat actors, right, where they make money off of doing illegal shit. So, you know, kind of pick your poison, pick what you're going to do and you know, hopefully you're not going to be a threat actor and drop ransomware on hospitals and shit, but that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes. That's the, the nature of the game. You know, those players are going to be around because it exists and it's a lucrative kind of thing to do. So, you know, I, I think that's just how it works. And being the founder of a, of a hacking group, a lot of people will uh, approach me and be like, oh, how can I overhaul my enterprise security and this, that, and the other. And you can sit there and you can kind of hammer away at what they should be doing. And they will pull one little tiny subcategory of what you're saying and just use that as like a model. And I think that's that's part of the problem too. Like, oh, you're so you're saying my web apps are vulnerable and I should just, no, I'm saying that you need to focus on web apps. You need to focus on network. You need to get EDR. You need to get logging. You need to hire hackers that know what they're doing to hack you and coordinate with the devs to fix it. Like there's so much that you need to do that unless you have a security team, you're not doing it and you're not going to be doing it right. And APT threat actors will tell you. And I think uh, Rob Joyce, if you know who he is, I think he's the director of the NSA right now. He said something very interesting when he did a talk about NSA Tal and his days as an APT Tal actor, right? One of the things he says is, APTs are successful because they end up learning your environment better than you know your environment. And that's true. If you sit there and you map out the external network and applications and versioning of an enterprise and you sit on that and you poke at them for weeks and weeks, you will eventually find something, whether it be a new CVE that comes out and you know that their enterprise isn't affected by it or something, and you will get in. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how you respond and what you do. So, um, Right. I think that's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And thank you so much for joining us, John. Um, I think we are going to wrap up now, but it'd be great if you've got any final thoughts for us um, before we probably say goodbye. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on for one. Uh, number two, final thoughts. I would just say if you are interested in starting a hacking group, then just do it. You know, don't wait around for someone to give you an invite. Make sure you're consistently learning something new and doing the right thing and and just trying to kind of push changes into effect, right? The CFAA, we don't want it around forever. I think we need serious changes if we want better government security and enterprise security in general and just, you know, 
we need to work together if we want security to be better and learn more hacking really so just get out there and just kind of make your make your own thing pave your own path that has been amazing thank you so much um and thank you rob for co-hosting always my pleasure amy um yeah and we'll be back next week with someone else <laughs> i don't know who yet it'll be nice one week if we actually know who's coming up it'd be great but you know chaotic good is we'll how everyone thinks so there we go absolutely we'll